0: This is the No Switch Fitness Podcast. We want to help guide your journey into developing your best physique. With your host, Luke Miller.
1: All right, guys, welcome back to the No Switch Fitness Podcast. And based on how much you guys really loved this episode, I am bringing the boys back together for another Q&A. Session. So, AJ and Nick, welcome back to the show. How is everyone doing right now? Thank you for having us.
2: Yeah, thank you very much. Yeah, all good here. Thank you very much, mate. Yeah, pretty good here, too.
1: We're all prepping right now. So, Mm -hmm. we're we're, we're all got days of the prep brain. AJ's probably the freshest of of the three of us. So, yeah,
2: yeah, um, I think you guys want to
1: get an update on like kind of where your preps are at. We'll do that real quick before we dive into the questions. I think people would like to hear kind of how things are moving where you're at thoughts on the prep so far and, and go from there
2: sure you want to go first, you want to go go first? Oh, okay we're both we're both too kind all right i'll go first <laughs> so um so yeah pretty sort of like like you said sort of easy running for me at the moment um the first 20 pounds has, has sort of come off since uh the start of, of of the prep itself and relatively efficiently so uh just coming into week nine now So I was losing at a a really, really good pace out of the gates. And that's something I think that probably is the biggest change out of previous preps is that I've just learned that when I've looked back on it on paper, from a strategic standpoint, I could have been way more assertive out of the gates when I've got that ease and ability just to drop off body fat, especially with how soft I do tend to tend to get in these previous off seasons. You know, I do. I do really sort of push the upper end of where I'd like to see body fat go um, and that's a topic for a different day but um, I'm a big believer that, that when you are younger you can benefit from that little bit extra that perhaps a more trained or experienced individual might might not need to push to um, but yeah that, that 20 pounds come off quite easy for me um, in comparison to previous preps arguably on a a little bit less food and a little bit more expenditure than i have done before but that's just to elicit that that faster pace you know I've, I've i've seen some some people ask me questions on the logs and say oh your food looks a lot lower than normal or your cardio looks a lot higher and uh, that is literally down to just the pace that i'm going you know i've never moved at this pace before it's always been the typical stay below one percent every single week Um, even straight out the gate so um, it's been a bit higher than that performance seems to be holding well Uh, so my readiness to train and you know actual in the gym performance has been been all good so I can't complain on that front and from a from a sort of a, a visual standpoint improvements I think I've done what I wanted to do over the short period of time that I had I've improved a little bit in in namely the arms and the chest of that sort of top line that I wanted to improve and I think sort of looking at how those improvements have come about, it's, it's, it's not even been frequency. I did dabble in a bit of higher frequencies for, for pressing, um, but I ended up just not being able to recover from it with what I wanted to do elsewhere because um, yeah, we're all probably attached to having certain movements and certain intensities across other sessions and that then leads into a bit of a domino effect. If you want to increase frequency on another body part, you, you've got you've to give up quite a bit to do that um i didn't really want to so instead i I, i've sort of really honed down on movement patterns that i connect really well with and just trying to master execution a little bit more so than i have done um sort of dropping i think dropping the ego a little bit across a lot of my pressing patterns where previously I'd, i'd try and i think training with cuba for me was a blessing and a curse i'd try and keep up with him on as many things as possible and as a result of that, I just try and create a mechanical advantage. Yeah. So for anyone that doesn't know who Cuba is, Cuba's an IFBB pro, you know, about a hundred pounds worth of stage weight on me, you know, so like, I'm not going to be keeping up. Um, but it was a blessing in terms of it really taught me how I needed to approach prep to a slightly different mental standpoint from a performance perspective, because he'd go in there. Um, you know, he might be in a phase where he's got a little bit of help, and I haven't, and I'd just keep up. And even if sometimes it was a bit of a mechanical advantage, sometimes on legs, it was literally just all up here. So like, I, I saw Cuba match his numbers, so I just, I just matched as well. And, and half the time, you know, it was still relatively accurate. So I've sort of taken a lot of that um, and a lot of what I needed to improve on um, and then sort of like boiled it all together into, into this prep, which is why I wanted to go again, because I know that I can be that little bit better um so yeah that's where i'm at
1: real quick aj before we hop on mm-hmm. the next uh you think your all season accuracy this year is a product of why you're moving so fast out of the gate too
2: uh yeah yeah i'd say so i had i had a lot of space to pull from um because i spent a lot of time moving up food creating adaptations on the way up that i hadn't done in previous off seasons you know, I, I i'd be that kind of person that would just sort of sit at a food intake and sit at a body weight and not really like have that incremental push whereas when I had that that six month sort of almost a bit more urgency to that 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 gaining phase I knew that every week sort of mattered and I almost just sit back and think well what happens if I applied that same approach over a longer span of time you know um which is damn hard to do as much as people say you know oh you know I did a two year off season, I was to the ground every day. Like it, it gets to the point where maintain, especially maintaining the routine. I don't know about you guys, but maintaining the routine, um, gets more and more difficult, um, as you get heavier and more lethargic and the bedtimes creep back and the wait times creep back. And yeah. So, um, but that, that sort of six month phase was probably my best at doing that. I stayed in probably like the closest to my, my prep routine that I've ever done.
1: I found that too with myself and my clientele is like, like this past all season was a longer one for me. It was two years and I stayed pretty close to my prep routine minus like the one or two weeks where we moved. Cause we moved like four times across those two years. Um, and, and, and this prep has been nothing but absolute smooth. I'm down 36 pounds already. And I did a side by side yesterday. It's, from stage shots to six and a half weeks out. And I'm as lean now as I was on stage, minus my back double. Yeah. So Nick, let's hear it, man. I'm excited. We get to share a stage together.
0: Yeah, it's gonna be cool. It's gonna be cool. It'll be my first show as well for anybody that doesn't know that. So that'll be exciting to finally get that done. Isn't that fucking crazy? The dude squats eight plates aside
1: and has it steps on a fucking stage.
0: Always, uh, I was one of those guys that forever always thought that I've got, I have another foot forward I need to step before yeah. I'm ready. And I every, know a lot
2: of people like that.
0: Yep. And every single year, I just be like, no, I need, to, I need to be a little bit more than that. And every year, I just kept on pushing it and pushing it. And I had some good, good excuses for it, especially going through school, because for the amount of like, everything that I was doing at the time, it wasn't going to be feasible, even if I wanted to. Yeah, scheduling It just wasn't even possible. But now that that's all done and out of the way, I do have the ability to, and for where I am right now, I, I need to get this done. And I need to actually show and make the proof of concept beyond just what can be done in the gym, bring the proof of concept of everything that I have brought to the table and brought to the forefront with my own clientele and the information I put out and the way that I present what I do to show that it actually has merit beyond just me pontificating behind an Instagram account. Love it. So that's really like, that's kind of where that's at. And to speak on the prep, I was prepping earlier this year from, I guess I would call like July. I was dieting. I pre-dieted a little bit before that to get ready for prep that I was going to do shows into November and December. And then At just about November, I moved from Western New York to Florida Mm -hmm. and that move and everything that happened with my own life during that time, separate from the move, but all related kind of like crashed everything in. And I was already having some like weird issues, like really bad edema and water retention that we just couldn't explain later on to figure out through blood work that my estrogen was three times the reference range, even though AIs were still implemented, so they were definitely fake. And then the rest of everything else that was in the mix was probably also misdosed or fraudulent or something else that it wasn't supposed to be. So those problems became big enough problems that I had to pull out because there was no way I was going to be ready and my health wasn't going to hold up for another month doing that. So I had to pull out then. About a three-month-ish span after that was pretty much just, Normalizing, bringing myself back to somewhat more normalcy, trying to get my health back. And then just training and trying to like build in a little bit of an off season, a little bit of a buffer period so that I could get myself, you know, just back to life before starting another prep for this season. Mm-hmm. Then after that was done, concluded, I started dieting, I think 18 weeks ago, about. Mm-hmm. And five of those weeks, we completely wasted because four of them had to go out the window because I crushed my thumb and gave myself a horrendous crush injury that if you look on my Instagram page and scroll a little bit, you will find me angrily sitting in a hospital room where my, my girlfriend actually took a picture of me while she was sitting in the waiting room me sitting there, scroll a little bit, you'll find the picture of it from the top, which is a whole lot more forgiving than what it actually looked like because the nail that was completely detached was covering the, uh, the demolition that was the rest of this finger Because everything beyond the last knuckle of the thumb literally exploded like a grape. There was not, there was not anything beyond the joint that resembled like a bone anymore. So I completely destroyed it. And so I had to take four weeks after that to not train at all because I had to get it all sewn shut and everything and put together. And I had to recover enough that me holding a water bottle in my hands wasn't going to breach the incisions. So I had to give myself some time. That was four weeks out of that diet after having a couple of weeks to lead in. During that time, actually, though, I had to, of course, pull all of the extra help out because there was no use for it at that point. I didn't know how long I was going to have to be out. So that, that was a good opportunity for doing that. And what we saw was my cardio was already set at 30 minutes a day, five days a week is what it was AM cardio. And then steps were low at like 5,000 is the average, which I almost always like go way past, not usually intentionally, but, I ended up getting there. And then food was set at a pretty standard spot. And through that entire four week period where there was no training, I actually got better. So I continued up to that point from the start of the prep to that point where I injured myself. I had lost like seven pounds in the first week of the diet, then like five, and then another five. And then I was like coming down and coming down. And then it just like slowed to a stop leading up in, and then pulled everything out, stopped training for those four weeks. And then the rate of loss picked right back up again. And I started to look better. I dropped a ton of water, everything cleared out. And I just looked the best that I had up to that point, which was crazy to me because I hadn't trained in four weeks. Yeah. So a ton of fatigue dropped because obviously me doing what I do, I built up so much fatigue over my training cycles just before, because the training cycle just before was the one where I had pushed my back squat up to eight plates for triples consistently, and then down sets of seven plates for 10 to 15, and then front squats of seven plates to three and six plates for 10 to 12. So I pushed there with that, also doing stiff leg deads from the floor at the same time, in doing another, a bent over row on the other half of the week. So like I had done all of that and everything across the board was progressing the whole time. And so me being me, I was like, you know what? I can still survive this. This is, this is, this is fine. So I just kept on going and then I didn't realize how big of a hole that was. Four weeks off was probably not even enough because I came back still not feeling a hundred percent. Yeah. So lesson learned there.
1: I'm a firm believer nowadays that fatigue management across the prep is the number one factor in someone's progress.
0: Mm-hmm. It, it appears to be. Yeah. I'm living proof 100%. of that. Yeah.
1: Because, yeah. And whatever may be influencing that fatigue, right? Like AJ, to your point, like a schedule issue, like yeah. inconsistencies in schedule driving fatigue, training volume, even like some exercise selection. Like I just had my first leg day where my weight didn't jump like three pounds like almost all prep. Right. And I'm, I'm pretty much ready at this point. I've got like maybe four or five pounds to pull off, but I think that learning what the tool of training is within a prep is a lot different than the tool within training of a, of off season and being able to manage that is huge. And like my volumes are rock bottom compared to what i progress on in an all season and so it's just interesting right and it's it suggests different exercise selection for contest prep as well and i'm seeing that when that is taken into consideration that
2: my clients are progressing at faster rates too i think psychologically it's sometimes hard to deal with that when you look at it on paper though especially especially for someone who's used to like thinking more is better because i remember like Last last year for me was the first time experiencing a prep where Cuba was obviously having his training done by Jordan Jordan Peters and Jordan was consistently telling us to to pull to pull it down to pull it down to pull it down and uh, you know I remember even it was like skewing Cuba's head and then skewing my head and but then we did it and then we both realised the, the 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 sort of the positive positive ramifications of that you know, so, but getting over it, I think the first, first couple of rotations and experiencing, okay, we're we're not doing that today. We're not doing that today. We're definitely not doing that rest pause that we used to do, you know, like chucking out all these things that you think bring more to the table, but they just really don't.
0: Yeah. Just digging a bigger hole.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. When you don't
0: have, when you don't have the shovel to dig yourself back out.
1: Yeah. Yeah, got really thinking about my all season phase two, like that first
0: phase out of contest prep, what that's looking like. But we'll save that for another day. Um, (laughs) Um, that I'll finish off with what I got for my prep. Yeah, started at two sixty eight pounds was my top. I am now this morning two twenty seven. Sure. Yeah, I'm probably going to show up between like two oh eight and two twelve. Yeah, is what I'm thinking. And we've got six weeks left to do that. And that's hundred percent going to happen. So for where I am right now, everything is running pretty well. Everything's consistently coming off the pit. We're going pretty, pretty quick right now. So the amount of activity, just like AJ activity is up, food is pretty low, but compared to the last prep, I feel a million times better. Yeah. I can, I can do what I'm doing right now, even with it being a little bit on like the tougher side with the amount of output that needs to get done and with the food that's going in for it, I can do this forever. Yeah, absolutely. Forever.
2: Just a quick question, Nick, you mentioned Matt gave you a high day today. Um, what's the, uh, what's the sort of the approach that he's using with those? Are they also regulated or are they planned in? Are they on specific days? Are they a rest day? Like how's that, how they're looking?
0: They're auto-regulated and they're not necessarily on a rest day or a specific training day. It's pretty much at whatever point is going to be the most convenient for it. And after there was enough days that we made consistent drops, enough for it to be warranted. So he's looking more at the rate of loss and how I'm visually looking rather than what my performance is like. Because I handle all of my training stuff. He doesn't touch or look over any of that. He trusts me to do all of that myself which you should, um, the, everything else he covers. So when he gives me a high day, it's, there's been some cheat uh, meals that have been given, which are like specified to one of the times it was, you can get six sushi rolls or um, two pieces of sashimi equals one sushi roll and you just do the math. Mm. No fried anything, like stuff like that and given like solid directions for what's going to be going in. Now, at this point, those are pretty much done with. Because that was a while ago that that was really allowed to. Now it's just raising the amounts of the foods that are already in. So my high day today just has a little bit more creamer rice and more white rice in the meals that I do uh, already had it in, and then added a little bit to a meal that didn't have any, and that's it. So for me, especially because I am, I am very water attentive. And almost anything can set me off. Jansen has to be very careful with what he's doing with my, my refeeds and my high days and everything, just to make sure that he knows exactly how to give me just enough that I'm going to get all the fullness that I need and actually like fill out and start to feel a little bit better, but not give me so much that it just throws me all the way over the edge, which is pretty easy to do. So he's got a tough job on his hands trying to take care of what this crazy body does, but He's doing a pretty good job of handling it so far. Cool. Yeah, yeah. So everything's going well. Performance is also pretty okay. Although I'm still a little bit lagged from my peak ability where I'm still kind of like, I'm at probably like 70% of my normal training capacity, which I wouldn't, I wouldn't give to the deficit as being the reason why I would say more. So is just from the carried over fatigue from the prior training cycle that never got fully resolved. Yeah. And so training right now in my programming is reflective of that, where I'm using variations of the lifts that I would typically do, changing the order of them so that I don't have the big major lifts as the primary for the first exercise done. And then trying to gear all my preparation into that movement and following up with the accessory work followed. I'm doing more things that are going to bring me to a point that I can't do top set down set with a big movement in the middle of a session. It's not going to work. It's taking me to getting myself doing some patterns that are going to be helpful for gaining the ability to do the bigger pattern a little bit better, along with the prep work that I do directly prior to the big movement. But it's also adding a little bit of fatigue in there. And it's also making me a little bit more aware of what's going on and allowing me to use a different variation for straight sets that will intensify like the leverages. That are going to be required to actually move the loads rather than moving just bigger loads trying to take advantage of my best mechanical positions which is always my normal approach yeah so that's where we're at with
2: that are you finding with the refeed nick that it pulls off fluid or are you, are you seeing a little bit of a scale weight increase and some glycogen come on board and then you sort of drop fluid as you return back to the the lower diet, the lower food
0: that's typically the way it goes. I usually yeah. put on, I put on a little bit and then mm-hmm. it drops off in the next two days.
2: So yeah. maybe it's for you, the, the fluid retention is a mix of different things, but perhaps maybe training fatigue related in the most part, rather than diet fatigue. Yes, absolutely. Yep. I'm, I'm the same. I can really go on quite low food and not really, not really like have the harsh effects that a lot of people get um but but for me when i when when my train when i train too many days in a row or i do a silly set uh, ah like the next day even is just like like you luke i go i'll go up like a pound and a half two pounds after a leg day if i've done something silly um and i'll know it I'll, i'll know it the whole next day like my neurological ability during coaching as well is just down the drain it just really pulls me down um so yeah, and need to be smart on that. <laughs> it to, it too. It's to the point,
1: like peaking Emily for this last show, I took two rest days across the day before and the day of because I had someone competing the day before too. And like just from being active enough and managing the clients across that show, I actually gained a pound just from like the fatigue, not even training. Yeah. I just, and then... Two days later, I had cleared three and a half pounds. Pl- I had cleared four and a half pounds and hit a three-pound load. It's like, yeah, I'm really sensitive to the fatigue drive.
2: Yeah, that's so crazy. It,
1: it's been an interesting thing because I'm like, Nick, I do my training. Um, and so managing that alongside the rate of progress has been, and that's actually how I've been using it, is if I see a rate of progress stall, like not in the logbook, but like in the, in the weight ad- adaptation or the conditioning adaptation is when I'm pulling back. Every time I've done it, it's new low, like four days later. So, but anyways, I am six weeks out and I feel like I'm three. Um, That's a little purposeful in case Emily wins her pro card so that I can celebrate with her um, and not derail my prep. Um, But I'm excited. I'm down like 36 pounds from peak weight, which was like 246. So I woke up like 210.5 yesterday like 211 this morning so i'll probably final package be like 205 fasted 206 um but at that 211 like i said i'm the same condition i was on stage last year which was 197 so i mean that's a pretty good tissue tissue addition so it's a it's a completely different look i'm really excited to see it on under stage lights and kind of like nick said it's like one of those things where you lead from the front you show the 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 things that you do show a difference from a year to year basis or even like a two year basis. Right. So that there's proof in the pudding and not just us ranting in an educated manner on a social media platform. Right. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. But we have some questions for today. Um, and I'm going to throw this first one to AJ it's how often are you getting your bloods done for natural competitors or yourself? Um, and are test levels, even a worry during a contest prep.
2: Mm. So uh, I think with blood work and naturals, a lot of the time, and you can obviously voice your opinions on this if you agree, but I think a lot of the time if something is inherently wrong, there will be enough warning signs for me to know that blood work is necessary. So I do agree in some time periods that it there is definitely utility in getting it done, just to have a little bit of a scope to see whether... What we're going to enter next is going to be something that's going to take away from the baselines that we've already got so for example pre-prep good time period to get it done especially if someone's perhaps transitioning into a prep that's been quite close to a to another one um and we've not quite seen things return to normal in some areas of just their general sort of physical well-being um <sighs> Another time that people might want to look to get it done just because they'd be intrigued would be like the back end of a prep. But I can tell you exactly what that's going to look like and it's not going to be nice. And if anything, if personally, if I was to get it done, and this is what I tell some clients, I say if I was to get it done at the back end of a prep and see the numbers that it was giving me, that would not be a good psychological bias at all. Like That would really made me realize the hole that i was in i mean for most males you're going to be as a natural you're going to be hypergonadal at the end of prep it's if you're in contest conditioning that's probably going to be the case or at least like the very very low end of normal ranges and that that's a good job done um and that's pretty much it to be honest and then obviously in certain situations just like you would with an assisted athlete if something's coming about and just the data doesn't make sense you know like someone's gaining on ridiculously low food and we've got perfect adherence um you want, might want to go in there and, and see what what's going on with thyroid hormones um and i've done that quite a few times where it's actually bit, and i've come back and they've been perfect and i'm like okay like you're really not being adherent now <laughs> yeah. so you just you just wasted 250 quid <laughs> so um yeah, like that's that's pretty much the situations that I'd get it done. In all honesty, and um, yeah, it's not done an a, an awful lot, but um, but when it is, there's usually there's usually a pretty pretty good reason.
1: Yeah, I'm kind of in the same boat. The only thing that I would consider adding as a consideration is like a six ish months post contest to make sure yeah. that you're back to normal. But typically, that situation is kind of what you said. Like you're checking it to make sure you've recovered so that whenever that next time's coming, like you're not in a state that is going to hinder progress in, in any sort of way. Um, but at minimum all, once a year for a full cool health check.
2: Yeah. I, I think also like just like anything, when you're coaching clients, like the more, you know, your client, the better with every single situation. So I'll know. And I've actually like requested it a few times from clients that just a really like mentally tough and resilient that they won't tell me when they feel a certain way. I've been like, okay, let's let's run bloods now Let's see where you're at in that exact scenario post show. Cause I know throughout their whole prep, they've been so like, just give me more like resilient kind of sort of approach to the prep, That post show, if they still felt like absolute dirt and, you know, without being crude, their dick still wasn't working. They probably wouldn't tell me. Because they'll just be the type of person just to brute through that um, and ignore it, and almost consider it as normal, um, which is worrying. Because a lot of bodybuilders do consider things that are actually very not normal, very abnormal, to be normal. Because we're bodybuilders, and I think that's where the line has to be drawn sometimes. Make like anything to add there?
0: Not really. I think that was well said.
1: Yeah. I like the comment about the bodybuilders thinking things are normal when they're abnormal because that is very, very, very prevalent. And like a lot of times it comes into actually communicating with your coach in a way that like, you know, in a way that you, you you know, that's clear. Right. And that's why like the systems and sheets I have set up kind of are a little bit more specific about like, if issues comment, like if issues comment, right. With everything that I'd be looking for, but um, next question is for all of us, but I'm gonna let Nick take it first. Breathing mechanics during a top set, what's optimal? Now, this is gonna be very movement specific, so you can kind of take the, the movement you want to explain this in, but just basic principles of breathing mechanics and, and what that looks like and like how ribcage position can influence that some as well, if you want, but... Um, Just kind of give a, give a basic thought process into what breathing mechanics should look like.
0: All right. So basic thought process on how breathing and bracing is supposed to work for top set efforts of really any compound movement. It's going to be different for whatever movement it is because your position in space relative to your pelvis and your rib cage is going to change what your breathing pattern should be like during the lift itself. Okay, and then what mechanical advantage or disadvantage you need to be in at what point, and what you need to maximize with your internal brace for you to get through a certain point of range of motion without compromising the position of any other joints. Yep. So, example that could be made there, pretty easy one would be deadlifting or doing an RDL. Yeah. Doing a hinge movement. This makes it a really, really easy visual to understand. So, at the very top, when you're standing upright. And everything is stacked, from your shoulder all the way down to uh, your foot, at the ankle. Everything's totally upright. You have no moment arm at all. So that means that from the axis of movement, the major axis of movement is your hip. From there to the distance of the bar is l- almost literally nothing because they should be pretty much connected. Okay? So you have no distance between those things in horizontal space. There's really nothing that is making all the muscles that hold you upright do much work other than just trying to hold you upright. They're creating the minimal amount of force possible for you to stay like this because all the joints are stacked relative to gravity. Okay. And then as you tip forward, as you go down into the bottom position, you increase that moment distance. Okay. So you are taking your shoulder further away from your hip and horizontal space. Okay. The bar is also traveling forward. That horizontal distance is increasing. You tip over, you get to your bottom point. That is where you require the most amount of resistant force. You need to produce the most from everything, from the base of your posterior chain, starting at your big toe, not your heel, all the way back and then all the way up to the base of your neck. All of that is doing the most work possible as you're the most bent over, okay? Now, as you're bending over, What you're trying to do is really, you're resisting yourself from becoming a fish pole. You have an extreme amount of load, the highest amount of load that you're gonna be able to use for this pattern, because the hinge in this pattern is going to be a pretty strong movement. As you're coming down, you're fighting a flexion force that wants to turn you into a fish pole. As you're going down like this, you don't have the ability, just by muscle alone from your posterior chain, to hold everything from your hip, the base of your hip, the way to your shoulders in one straight line they are insufficient to do that job by themselves okay so because they are insufficient at being able to do that by themselves without help from the rest of the system what is the rest of the system it's not just you trying to like use the tug of war of like thinking think this way is if you had a rope that was signifying all the muscular force that all the muscles of your posterior chain are affecting from your hip to your shoulders. And you got somebody down below you and behind you that pulls on that rope that is pulling your torso upright or fighting you from falling forward, okay? You have that person pulling on that rope and that is the signifying of the force. That alone doesn't stop you from folding. That helps you to resist it, but it's not quite enough as the force needed to hold that position increases. What you need is somebody to be pulling that rope and somebody underneath you to hold the rest of you in place. What is that person, that force that is holding the rest of the things in place from the front? That is intra-abdominal pressure. It is intra-pleural pressure that you create through the top of the rib cage in your lungs, all the way down into the pelvic floor. That is what creates the pressure vessel That makes all the muscles of your back be able to do its job because these muscles have not all that much ability to hold you in place if all of the things in front of you from your rib cage down just wants to fold over because it has nothing to resist it from the front. You need to have balanced force here, you need to have something to stop it. So, what is happening as you go down in a hinge to bring it back to really the point of this? As you're coming down, and the force required for you to hold position is. Increasing when you get to the point where you require the most amount of resistant ability to that intent of the force you're moving, that is where you need the breath and the brace the most. So, easy example bring this back to reality standing up at the top of a deadlift or an RDL and going (gasps) and trying to do the whole rep after having just sucked in a huge amount of air, and then trying to lock it down while you do your fully centric, get to the bottom, and then stand it back up, and, you, and then go, and try it again, doesn't work, okay? There's, in, there's internal dynamics of the rib cage that directly contradicts that to start with, because inhalation really doesn't help you with bracing to the degree that you believe it does, is the internal mechanics. Any case, when you're coming into the position, you require all that force. You need to create the pressure vessel only where it's needed because to create that pressure vessel from intra-abdominal pressure, it's not just air in your lungs. Air in your lungs within a, a soft tissue, lungs, is not generating enough force to create a brace that will stop your body from folding in half with 300, 400, 500, 600 pounds trying to draw you into the floor. It it doesn't work like that. The pressure that you build is not from breathing and breathing is not bracing. Breathing is a part to bracing where you create greater internal pressures through expanding into the inter-abdominal cavity with the breath, to the degree that you need to, getting the diaphragm to come down and cinching all the muscles of the core, everything in the center around it. If there's no limitation to how much volume is in that space, you don't create more pressure. So, you're bracing, breathing for a top set movement of a hinge or a squat or a press. They can be fairly similar in the fact that you need to be thinking about where it is that you're breathing and you're bracing line up to provide you the most amount of advantage at the point where you require it, not at the point where you just decide that I'm just going to take the breath here and brace here because this is going to hold me through the whole rep.
1: Just for some clarity here too, this is where me and him talk about pelvis to ribcage line a lot is the capacity to maintain this breath because where the pelvis is relative to the rib cage will tell you how much pressure can be created via the pelvic floor and the diaphragm and so if you understand the relationship of like the diaphragm concentrically lowering and the pelvic floor eccentrically lowering when we do go to create that pressure the more in line that we can think of it as like that tin can the better you're going to be able to create pressure which is why when we see this like big expansion of like open pump handle open bucket bucket handle like rib cage position and a lot of these movement patterns it's it's a rate limiter simply from the fact that you can't create enough pressure to resist the force that's needed to maximally output yep. Is like one of the contributing factors of like you're stronger than you think you would literally be stronger by positionally being in a different spot
0: yeah yeah and again that just goes back to the internal pressures Internal pressure can't be created if volume isn't controlled. If you're just expanding and you're taking in a big breath, you're just expanding yourself into eccentrically loading all of the tissues that create the pressure. The muscular brace is what really gives you the pressure. The respiratory system gives you the opportunity to create more of it, but it's the muscles around the space that create the pressure because they define the volume of the space. If you don't define the volume of the space, you have no pressure. Take in that big breath of air as much as you want. If that big breath of air in, especially if it's belly breathing, mm-hmm. take in a big old breath and you just expand everything out as far as it goes, that did nothing for building pressure because you had to relax everything for you to allow yourself to breathe that much air in, and to expand all of those tissues. You need to have a counterforce against it, where you have the internal pressure pressing out, the external pressure from the muscular walls pressing in against it. That's where the bracing pressure comes. Tangibles. Tangibles. RDLs. Deadlifts. (sighs) Stiff legs. You're going to want to have the air locked in with your brace intact at the point where you require the most Ability to move or resist force in the bottom. When you're squatting, this is something I actually talked about today on my, own, on my Instagram story with pause tempo squats. On the way down, you don't need to lock in everything and take that big gulp of air and then try to hold that through the entire rep all the way down and all the way back up. Okay? What you need is you need to control the amount of resistant pressure from the abdominal wall. Have a fairly constant amount of respiratory volume through small inhales and exhales until the point where you require the most ability to resist conformational changes, which is where you get to the stick point, 90 degree flexion at the knee. You pass that point, that's where you take the, the moderately larger breath in, lock it down. Get yourself all the way into the bottom, still hold that breath until you have passed the 90 degree flexion point again to stand up. And then you can breathe normally again until you go back down. The brace stays throughout, but it's at a much less intensity rather than trying to just brace it down as hard as you can. You should be able to keep it relatively strong without overdoing it because the secondary part of this and the reason why taking the big breath at the top of a movement like that doesn't help. Is because you doing that, that is requiring all the muscles of your core and all the accessory breathing muscles and primary breathing muscles to do a lot of work. Muscles doing work fatigue. If those muscles are what holds the entire center of your body, your rib cage, which is the base for your shoulders, your spine, which is the base for your rib cage, which is the base of your shoulders, your spine, which is the base or the hip, which is the base for your upper leg, if that whole centerpiece is compromised because all the muscles that hold it in place are fatigued, you've failed the set and you are not being limited by the primary movers that you're trying to train. You're being limited by all the secondary musculature that holds you in place to be able to express that output capacity through the prime movers. So if you take that big breath of air in and trying to hold that brace for the entirety of the eccentric, bottom, concentric, all the way to the top for a deadlift or a squat pattern, no matter what variation it is, trying to do it that way, you get a couple reps in, you have significantly fatigued all of your breathing musculature and everything that holds your muscular brace for your core. And then what do you have left? You have just those muscles that are ill-suited. To do all of the heavy lifting of holding all those structures together from the back, which is where you end up folding up like a lawn chair and looking silly because you thought that you had more because your legs had more. And then you go back into the bottom, your breathing wasn't right, your brace wasn't there, and you get folded up into a question mark. Then it's done. And that's what happens when you don't know how to breathe and brace, and your entire position is based off of muscles that can't do the job by themselves. Hey Jay,
2: you I've up. got nothing to add to that <laughs> <laughs> surprise uh, surprise that was fantastic Nick
1: I think that, I think that's the level of detail that people don't go to and like yeah just want to look bro which is great I mean I'm all for like just like putting some headphones on and getting angry but uh, <laughs> when we call when we call upon like the capacity of getting the most out of our training these are the kinds of things we need to be looking at right like what's what's creating the pressure, what's creating the counterforce within the movement in order to to maintain that pressure, things along those lines so that we can get the most out of our training. And walking through that with the different movement patterns is important because kind of like we alluded to on a previous podcast, it can affect the the external levers that are going to be attached to that core torso, right? And like specifically with a pressing example of how Uh, scapular humeral rhythm will work and things along those lines that can change according to how much pressure you build and maintenance of rib cage position and ability to output with all that so um, it's definitely an important concept to start to learn and dive into and you don't have to fully understand it just reach out to people who do and then kind of get the the tangibles like he's kind of walking you through into how that can transfer into your movement patterns
0: and while we're here I, I'm not going to go off into another tangent, but I want to bring up something that we should talk about another day. Yeah. is this concept that just just popped into my head? Literally everything about what we do in training is about counterforces, forces yeah. And the proper balance of force to counterforce across every single interface of every muscle tissue, across every single bone, that works in every single organizational pattern across our entire body. The balance of which isn't always. Balanced one to one, but the ratio of which one is higher or lower at what period of time is what determines movement. So we're that is going to be something that we're going to have to go through some examples of to make that a little bit more like tangible. So it's not just all ethereal stuff. Yeah, but yeah. that's something that we need to talk about because that that'll I think that'll like illuminate a lot of things to people where we can take a little bit of this like dichotomous thinking away from the bodybuilding culture, as far as movement goes, where it's just this movement only does this thing because of this, like this one piece of just one mechanism of the primary movement itself is the only thing that matters and absolutely nothing else that provides for that ability to do that thing even matters at all, or even has any impact, which is an argument that I have had a million times in my head, but don't have the heart to go and do it to the people that perpetrate it because they just literally will not get it. <laughs> So if we can just do that, that would be a great piece of information that we could just like put out there as a baseline, a foundation for some understanding of what it is exactly that human movement really is and take a little bit of the exoticism away from it and just give it some like, albeit a little bit higher level concept to understand, but something that will lay a groundwork that makes all of the rest of the exoticism of the exercises and the choices and the reasons why just to make logical sense think we're gonna have to plan a whole episode for that nick yeah you know, we, uh, aj's over here
1: like man don't bring me on that podcast <laughs> <That's> that <shit." laughs> no um uh, good. <laughs> all right so next question uh this probably be our last one for the day um can you go over bfr bands how slash when do you use them how often do you use them etc um aj you want to start since nick just Lou, you can start. You can start. Yeah, for sure. Um, so BFR, I, the they do have utility, but I think it's going to be very specific situations and the frequency at which I'm using them with people is few and far between. Um, we can look at like literary comparisons of BFR training relative to 70% training and see hypertrophy matched across these across these training modalities, right? Um, there's tons of different BFR training modalities. Typically the way that I go and suggest is somewhere in the not 90% um, cuff pressure area, kind of more in like the slower 60 to 70% cuff pressure area. Um, obviously people aren't gonna be using something to measure pulse. Um, like we have in a lab, so that's a little bit tough to tell. But like seven-ish out of a ten scale on tightness is probably enough. Um, and and typically the utility here is going to be working around injuries with an RLM. So um, outside of that, I mean, I think you can elicit a metabolite response with higher rep training. Um, so there's no real need to use a BFR band for metabolite accumulation. Um, I literally think the benefit is being able to accumulate volume that's going to stimulate a hypertrophy response in a place where force is not an option yes
2: did you use any bfr when lots of the clients went into lockdown and they had limited load
1: yeah so that's that's actually an application in which force is not available so you had to use bfr um yeah. in that sense and i'm a little bit hesitant with it as well because i've seen some hardcore type a idiots just take it too far. Yeah. And so like I have to understand the client before the implementation, but yes that was another place in which implementation makes a lot of sense.
2: Yeah. Is there any place that you see people using BFR like nowadays in gyms and you just think that that just has no utility at all? Yeah, I saw someone doing chest presses with them wrapped around the arm. <laughs> They probably got them off a YouTube ad or something. Like,
1: you realize like synthol versus <laughs> versus boxing and, like how that works and like blood circulation. I, I didn't take the time to to go stop this guy cuz he had so much synthol on his arms it it was like jiggly but um, um yeah, so I mean I've seen some fucking crazy shit but um I think I mean I think you could use it if it's something you want. I mean, I wouldn't use it for long periods of time as in Long periods of time, as in like long stretch of weeks in a program. Like try to keep it as minimal as possible, unless injuries forcing the matter. Yeah. AJ, do you have anything in common there, Nick? Nick, I saw you had you were using them, not too long ago, uh, right?
0: I put I put them in for a leg session last week. Yeah, I was actually, so. and that was a circumstance where load wasn't available because of my thumb. Uh, so sorry. yeah, so. It, within the plan was walking lunges and that was what I intended to do. And I made a valiant effort, but because of the way that I have the bandage on <laughs> my thumb, because it's still like, if I hold it like this, it looks pretty normal now, which is amazing to me because this was not a finger, but from the top, which I'm not going to show to the camera because for anybody eating while doing this, I don't need anybody to puke. I won't be responsible for that, but from this side, it's still open. So, I need to cover it when I go in to train, or else I'm going to get a staph infection or something. And it's going to be ridiculously terrible. So with me covering that, I am pretty limited with how much I can grip and just like how much shifting can happen while I'm gripping for that bandage not to come off. And so when I had to go and do my walking lunges, doing it with an accurate weight for me, which is walking with 150 pound dumbbells trying to hold those in place while, you know, like walking lunges, you're going to be shifting back and forth. The hand angle is going to change. They're going to turn a little bit up and back. They're going to rotate a little bit in and out. Like with that amount of shifting, I couldn't because it was just pushing it further and further and further off of my hand. Yeah. And so for that reason, load wasn't an option because obviously it was just going to keep on making everything loose. So strap on the BFR and then do a basic equivalent of what I was going to do with that, and then just try and get a stimulus without using load. I've also used, and we've talked about this before, I've used BFR for times where I've had like knee issues that have popped up. The first time that I ever implemented it was two or three years ago where I had torn my right menial meniscus. Mm -hmm. And yeah, but that actually happened at the very last day of a deload week while I was doing a body weight squat while stretching before going to bed. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So not
2: even exciting.
0: I know. Right. (laughs) It's terrible. It's a horrible story. So I tore that. And then obviously I couldn't really do much of anything, especially like deep knee flexion whatsoever for a good long time. So at that point, my, my major interventions were to be take care of hip and ankle function with doing unilateral type work and doing, especially with free body movement. So doing a lot of lunges, a lot of rear foot, front foot, elevated split squats, doing a lot of lateral work. And then doing sumos, actually, and the lunges and most of that work was done with BFR. And then trying to start with BFR first, building up my capacity to get into position and still actually get a stimulus out of it while I couldn't actually load into it because it was load sensitive for how the pain was going to react So going from there and building up, using a little bit more load with BFR, a little bit more load with BFR, dropping back the BFR pressure, eventually taking away the BFR, and then just using full load again, and then introducing other movements that would bring me even closer and closer and closer to my normal capacity. And so that's where I have used it, where it's the same constraints that you laid out. It's doing something in injury setting where load and range of motion is an issue and then modifying patterns where load isn't an option to allow you to get the stimulus that you need while everything else is off the table. So,
2: yeah. AJ, you got anywhere else you use it? Not to be honest. I There was a time period a long time ago where everyone seemed to be using them for arms. Um, so I, I, I went through a phase of doing some arm work with them. But I think that the, at the time there was people using the rationale of like the buildup of the metabolites, et cetera. But I, I think it, when you look at that on paper, you can build up plenty of metabolites just with high rep training and drop sets. You don't need to attach a, you know, something to, to limit blood flow to be able to, to do that. So, um, maybe there's some slight utility in the fact that it helped me connect a bit more with some arm movements just because it gets yeah, such an aggressive pump. Maybe I found movements where I could really, really lock in and take it all the way there um, but again, I could have just sort of done that with 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 higher rep training. So I I think people like something that looks attractive, that looks different. And they're quick to hop on the bandwagon with those kind of things. So I think BFR is one of those things that does have, like you said, you know, specific use within people that are hurt or injured or working around limited load. But outside of that, if you're if you're injury free and you've got plenty of loads, you don't really need to to have it in a program really
0: there's actually one other application that i want to bring up and it's along the same lines but it's with elderly populations
1: yes yeah because of load maintenance
0: and yeah yeah Yeah. so if you work with any sort of a a geriatric population or somebody that has like a wasting disease or something like that those circumstances are perfect opportunities for using dfr Perfect. And there's a lot of data to back up because those populations are studied with BFR. Yeah. So those are really good applications for using it for really the same reason. It's just for a a much larger scale of the reason why.
1: Um, If you guys want places to look, Dr. Buckner, Dr. Samuel Buckner, he's out of the university of South Florida. Now he does a lot of research in this BFR stuff. He's kind of the guy that I kind of learned a lot of this from. Um, and Dr. Linicky and them have some papers out of Ole Miss too, um, where when Dr. Buckner was in grad school there. So, um, just kind of to give you guys an idea. Um, but that covers the questions that I wanted to hit for today. AJ, Nick, do y'all have anything for the viewers before we kind of log off?
2: Not really? No. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it.
0: Yeah, not really anything for me either. Just happy to be here. Well, I'm gonna pit myself out. So
1: if you guys want to learn more about like breathing mechanics, especially within the patterns of like a squat, make sure that you guys check out the seminar August 15th. Um, Nick, myself and John Jewett will be presenting there um, at Destination Dallas in Dallas, Texas. Um, And we'll be doing a train with the pros event afterwards. Um, I haven't gotten the full list of athletes yet, but it's going to be most of the gasp athletes. So make sure you guys come and check that out. Um, and then, yeah, I think that's the only thing that I have on the table. So thank you so much again, guys, um, as always, and we'll do this again next month.